Well, we get back into Ephesians here. We're nearing the end of our book, um, and uh, if you have a Bible, your Bible app, I want to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 10, that will be in just a moment. A few years ago, um, the folks at the Dillard's department store uh, added some spice to the Christmas season by introducing a new character that kids could come visit. Not only was there Rudolph and Frosty and Santa, but they had a new thing. They said from December 14th to 21st, Dillard's will be having the largest sale of the year. Just in time for Christmas, there will be a special appearance by Satan between the hours of 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. So I'm not sure how the event went. Um, That's just a different twist on the holiday. Um, so that just reminds me that my, uh, my English teacher always reminded me that spelling matters, and it does. And so, uh, um, so anyway, uh, that introduces what we're going to look at here today. Uh, there are a uh, few passages, probably this is probably the, the passage that kind of talks to us as Christian people about our relationship with uh, what the Bible calls the adversary of our souls, the one who works against everything that God is trying to do. And so um, we're going to be looking at the theme of, of, of Satan here today, and, um, and we'll get into that here in a second. But there's a reason that Paul does this. He wants you to understand your enemy. I, uh, I appreciate this joke, and uh, I, I'm going to tell it, and so I hope it's okay if I tell it. Um, there was once a, a blind or visually impaired man who walked into, into a bar, and, and he sat down at the bar, and he knew there was a guy behind him, and he, he, he kind of talked to him, and he says, hey... But do you want to hear a blonde joke? And, uh, and before he could go farther, the guy sitting next to him says, Hey, before you tell your joke, you just need to know that the bartender is a blonde, and the bouncer at the door is blonde, and I'm blonde, and I'm 6'1", and weigh 200 pounds, and have a black belt in karate, and the guy on the other side of you is blonde, and he's 6'3", and 6'20", and plays rugby, and the guy at the end of the bar is 6'5", weighs 250, and is a professional wrestler. Now, friend, do you still want to tell that blonde joke? And the blind man thought for a second and said, Nah, not if I'm going to have to explain it five times. Um, <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. There you go. There you go. There you go. If you want to be in a fight, if you want to win a fight in particularly, it is important for you and I to understand your opponent. And this passage in Ephesians 6 um, is one of those passages where Paul is trying to help us, not scare us, he's trying to help us understand our opponent. Um, He doesn't want us to live in terror. He doesn't want us to live defeated. He's written everything in Ephesians talking about how victory is ours in Christ. But there's there's an opponent. There is one who works against all of the things that God is trying to do in you, for you, through you, in Christ. And... um, there's an opponent who works against all of those things. And so earlier in Ephesians, Paul had prayed at the end of chapter 1 and even chapter 3, he prayed that, that the eyes of our heart would be opened to see the realities, of, um, the realities of the spiritual riches, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And that our lives are so richly blessed in Christ. And we have so much to not only be thankful for, but to live from, to draw strength from, uh, to gain help from And Paul wants us to live there. And so now at the end of the letter, after he has outlined all of those blessings, he has kind of gone through and talked about the implications of those blessings in chapters 4 and 5, the beginning of chapter 6. Now I think he wants our eyes also to be open to the reality of an enemy who works against us. 
this is one of those passages that kind of talks to us about the idea of spiritual warfare. Um, and yet, I don't want this to be a thing where all of a sudden we give power to Satan that he doesn't have, but I do want us to understand the reality of his work in our life and how if we're not aware of our enemy, um, if we don't understand the ways and the things that he's trying to do in our life, um, we won't live in the victory that God through Christ is trying to work into your life. And so let me read the first few verses of this passage. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Don't, don't miss that. Don't fly by that too quickly. Where's the strength going to come from? It's in the Lord and in his mighty power. And so pull on, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, again, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day, and circle that word when, not if, but when, those difficult hard days are going to come, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. By my count, there are three times in that passage where Paul emphasizes the word stand. He wants you as a Christian to stand, to be able to, uh, to stand when, when attack comes, to be able to stand when things are hard, to be able to stand when, when all that God is trying to do in you is met with opposition and discouragement and all the things that come as you're trying to live out this life in Christ. He wants you to be able to stand. But you can't stand on your own. You can't stand in your own strength or in your own power. You need to put on that which God makes available to you in Christ. And so our victory, first of all this morning, begins with simply a clear understanding of your enemy. He wants you to understand who the enemy is clearly. And it's easy for us in this world, especially in an in a, um, industrial and in a technological world, that, that the idea of, a, of, a real, of, of Satan is just an idea that uh, much of our world laughs at or mocks. And, and yet, when you read through every New Testament writer, they, they speak of Satan as, as a reality. And the person who speaks the most about Satan is Jesus himself. And so for us to, to, to go through life and to enter into this conversation with thinking, well, that's just an old way of looking at things. So we've we got to get rid of a lot more than, than just Satan if you're going to get rid of Satan from your thinking. Jesus was very confident about the reality of an opponent who was working against everything that God was trying to do in this world. And so as you read through Ephesians, Paul has gone to great um, lengths to help us understand a couple of key things about this whole idea of, of what it means to be in Christ. I think the first five chapters, I hope, has, has built confidence to you that, that we need to understand that in Christ, we can, we can rest. That I, I can rest in my faith in him, not rest as in not do anything, but just I can rest my heart there. I can put my life there, and it is a safe and secure place for me to be. Much of Ephesians is dedicated to unwrapping all of these riches, all of the things that God has done to include us, to, to make us part of Christ. And um, he has blessed us in chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, he has blessed us, I should say, emphasizing that word with every blessing. Not future, or, or it's, it's a present thing. It's done it if we're in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, he has raised us. He has seated us in heavenly places. And so... When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, there's, uh, when we join up our lives with Christ, 
that there is something that is done in that moment. There's done in that, in that, in that time. And everything necessary that, that is needed to let you be able to just rest and trust in Christ and it to be okay has been done because of what Christ has done with us. And so Satan can't do anything about that. He can't do anything about the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. But Satan still is at work. And Satan's work in your life is not to, to, to take what he can't take. His work is oftentimes to try to rob you of the blessings that come because of those realities. He longs to, to steal that, that attitude of victory, that attitude of, I can do this, the attitude of perseverance. He's, he, he's always threatening and, and working to, to discourage and, and, to, and, to, uh, and to get you to want to quit. Jesus said that Satan is a liar and a robber, as a thief. And he's going to lie and, he say, and he's going to say that those blessings don't apply to you. You don't have that strength. You don't have those blessings. And then he's going to be a thief and he's going to try to destroy that confidence, uh, the life that Christ wants to be working in your life. And so in Christ alone, we, we realize in Ephesians that in Christ we can rest, but, but also in the same place, in the same place, in, in the same wording, I should say, Paul says not only do we rest there, but there's also the struggle. We wrestle in Christ as well. You see, we are in a struggle, and Paul wants you, as he finishes his letter, he wants to remind these Ephesian Christians that, that this is not easy, and it shouldn't be thought of that it's going to be easy. There is a struggle because there is an opponent who, he's probably indifferent about you, but he hates the one that you love. He hates the one that you have pledged yourself to serve and to follow. He hates him. And so anything he can do that hurts the one who has defeated him, he will do. And that's where you and I come into this whole struggle, that we are in a struggle and it is important to pause and think about, even if you go back, and I would just, I'm not going to read it this morning, but just go back this afternoon and read through Acts chapter 19, where the church was started in the city of Ephesus. And, and there's a special emphasis in that chapter as, as, as you read through it, um, that there was a lot of demonic, there was a lot of uh, things going on there that related much to this. And so when Paul would write that, that you have an opponent, you have an enemy, Satan is alive and well in our world, the Ephesians would heartily agree. In fact, when many of them, after the gospel was preached and, and people began to, to find salvation in Christ, that um, this text talks about how many of them went home and they got these scrolls, these scrolls that they used for magic, these scrolls that they used for whatever kind of dark things they were using them for, and they began to burn them. In Ephesians, I don't know the exact number, but the, the dollar amount of that was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of scrolls that were burned that day as they were saying, you know what, we're done living for the idols and for the gods and for the evil of this world, and we're going to follow Christ now. And so, um, as chapter 6, verse 12 speaks about this struggle, it isn't about flesh and blood. We're not competing against each other. Um, that's oftentimes where we see the struggle. But the struggle is really in a place that we can't see. And I love the example of Job. If you read the beginning of Job's book, um, Job um, is just going about his normal life, his very blessed life in a lot of ways. And yet Satan comes to God and says, hey, the only reason that Job follows you is because you've blessed him. And God said, no, Job's heart is sincere. Job doesn't follow me because of the things I've blessed him with. And so... God allows Job to go through some intense testing, some hard things, not to ruin Job, but to prove the genuineness of Job's life and his heart. 
And so just like Job, he never knew all that, though. He didn't know the background. He just knew his life got really, really hard all of a sudden. And, and I think that maybe that's part of what we see, that, that there are spiritual things that are going on that we see played out in, in our physical world that, that sometimes we don't always understand. And, um, and so Paul would just remind us that there is an enemy who is always at work, who is, as Peter would talk about, describes him as a, as a, a lion that is sneaking around, seeking someone he can devour. And so Paul is calling us first, I think, to just have an understanding of our enemy, because if you don't think you have an enemy, you're going to get really comfortable and calm and relaxed in this world. And yet Paul is calling you, not just here, but lots of places in Paul's writing, he calls us not to, to get relaxed in this world. This world is not our home. He calls us constantly to be alert, to be awake. And why would he call us to be alert and awake? Because there's an enemy who is always out to steal and kill and destroy the good that God wants to do in your life. And so he wants us to be, have an understanding of our enemy. And so having said that then, if we're going to understand our enemy, we can't, we need to understand the enemy's ways. Because Paul uses a word in that text, remember the little word scheme, uh, that, that we're not unaware in other places, the Bible talks about we're not unaware of Satan's schemes. Paul says, hey, there's these schemes that he's going to play out that, that take your stand against the devil's scheme. So what does that look like? Well, I have a list of six. These aren't original with me. I, I, I'm going to put them on the screen here so you can see them. We're going to walk through them quickly. But I just, this is some of Satan's schemes. And sometimes we think, well, well maybe Satan's trying to, uh, he's got some big demonic thing that's going to show up in the sky. But I think the list is, is kind of more subtle than that. Maybe it looks like he's going to attack the family. He's going to attack your family, right? The Satan wants to destroy Christian families. He wants divorce to be more common in the church than in the world. He wants husbands to despise their wives and for wives to disrespect their husbands. He wants parents to be annoyed by their kids and, and kids to live in rebellion against their parents. He wants there to be so much tension in the home that by the time a family gets to church in the parking lot, they have to put on a plastic face and they're not learning anything because there's just this tension that they're living with. And Satan wants to stir that war up because it distracts you from what God wants to do in your life. Or maybe it's the attempt that Satan wants to divorce morality from spirituality that he loves it when, not, when the non-Christian world can, can look at the hypocrisy of the church and they mock us for it. He wants to create this thinking that as long as you are at church and doing the religious things on Sunday morning, that you can do whatever you want Monday through Saturday. As long as you're back in that place and doing the religious things, so you can be a coarse or a vulgar person. It's okay, just show up on church Sunday. Or you can be a greedy person. Or you can be a sexually promiscuous person. Or you can be a dishonest person. Or, or you can live and watch and think about the filth all week long. Just, just show up back at church on Sunday. He wants to divorce morality from spirituality. Or maybe he wants to cause an allowance for continued spiritual infancy. Uh, in other words, he wants us to be comfortable with never growing up in Christ. He wants us to be comfortable with that idea. He wants that to be normal. That, that yeah, we know Christ. We, we do this decision thing and I'm baptized, but I never grow into anything. I'm just still the same spiritual baby I was when I made that decision 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Satan loves it when Christians make a decision, but they never mature into anything. Maybe it's the salt on the unity of the church. That Satan wants to do all he can to get Christians to bicker and fuss and fight with each other. He wants us to make big deals out of little things. He loves it when Christians threaten to withhold their involvement or their friendship or contributions or, or, or just look for something else because we're just upset with each other over little things. 
He loves it when we slander church leaders or fellow church members. He loves it when we splinter off from each other. Or maybe it's the idea of, of appealing to works of righteousness that you just be good enough yourself. You don't need Jesus. Satan loves that lie. He loves that, that, that Satan can, can make us think, well, I don't need Jesus. I'm okay. I'm not terrible, but I'm, I'm okay. I do a lot of good things. He wants me to trust in myself, and he wants you to trust in yourself. And Satan hates the idea of Calvary, of what happened at Calvary. And he can't stand the sight of what Christ's blood does uh, for us. And so oftentimes we can get focused on just happiness and fulfillment in life. And we forget about grace that we need. Or maybe lastly on this list is the acceptance of spiritual poverty. Um, and what I mean by that, he wants Christians to be completely ignorant of their blessings, of the resources that they have that are available to them in Christ. He doesn't want them to know and believe and to live as if their salvation has been secured. He doesn't want them to know that they are filled with a Holy Spirit that can help them and, and empower them and, and transform them. And so you may ask, well, where did you come up with that list of six things? Um, and if you've been paying attention the last two months, this is exactly what we've been preaching, right? This is the, a backward look at the book of Ephesians. And this is everything that Paul has been trying to teach and to build us into our life. You see, Paul made this list. And just as you go backwards through, and in that little verse 10, Paul uses the word finally. It's not saying like when the preacher says finally, you know, at least in the next 20 minutes we can go get out of here. That's not what he's talking about. He says finally, it's not as if I'm, here's another point. It, he's kind of saying finally to say, okay, I've been saying all these things, and here's the final thing I'm going to say about all these things. And so he adds another thing to it. Um, the whole book of Ephesians, the whole letter, was how to embrace life in the heavenlies, right? How do I live in Christ while we live in a world that has gone to hell in so many ways? And so how do we live like people that are seated in Christ? And that's what this book is calling us to stand in, to sit in. And so just review, I got another slide that kind of adds the text back into this. Um, what is Paul asking for? If we're going to win this war, chapter, we'll go backwards here, start at the bottom. Uh, the acceptance of spiritual poverty. We looked at the beginning of this letter. If we're going to win this war, we have to know how rich we are in Christ. And that Paul ends that passage by praying that our eyes will be open to the riches that are ours in Christ, that we have to know and own our spiritual blessings. In chapter 2, verse 10, we have to know that we are saved by his grace, not appealing to my own righteousness, but, but to the righteousness of Christ, because in myself, Paul says, I'm dead. I am dead before God, and I need his life and his grace to make me alive again. So it's not about me, it's about what I'm trusting in, in him. In chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 21, um, that section there where he talks about uh, the unity part of what Christ died to give us. We have to know that God wants his church to be unified, at all po if at all possible. The cross has torn down the wall between races. Chapter 3, it's between the Jews and Gentiles and how we all share in the same blessings in Christ. In chapter 4, he uses that, that familiar passage that there's just one God, one Lord, one faith, one hope, one spirit, one baptism. So keep the unity of the spirit. We have to be together if we are going to win the war. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we have to grow up. That one of the ways we win the war is by growing into maturity. It helps us to win the battles. No more being an infant who's just tossed about by every time a new idea comes. I just get blown about. I have no stability and strength because I've not matured in my faith. And then later in that chapter, it talks about finding our spiritual gift and using that so that the whole body can be built up. 
chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. The idea of, I can't allow what happens when I go to church on Sunday, it needs to have a direct impact on, on how I live. That your spirituality and morality are integrated. He says, walk in a worthy manner. No more crude or coarse joking. No more lying. No more stealing. No more lusting. No more bitterness. No more raging, fighting, angry tempers. No more getting drunk, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Walk as children of light, he goes on to say. The two things must go together if I'm going to stand. And finally, he talks about relationships in chapter 5, verse 21, verses chapter 6 to 9. Calls husbands to lay down your, your life. Don't lay down your wife. Lay down your life for your wife, right? Um, and wives, start respecting your husbands. You kids honor your parents, and you parents nurture your children. There's just this difference in relationship. This whole book has been talking about how to live a life in the heavenlies, in a, in a world that looks and, and pursues so many other things. But the only way that you can do that is to be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. And so some of those are some of the schemes that Satan's at work to try to do in all of our lives. And so the last thing I want you to see here is victory is bound up as I stand in Christ. That victory is bound to this whole idea of how am I standing in Christ? How am I doing with that? What does it look like to stand in Christ? You see, Paul lists the armor as we were going to read the rest of this passage. And he lists the armor that we are called to put on. And it's all his armor that I'm putting on to my life. And so I, I, we're going to walk through that. But the temptation is, though, to read the passage and think, well, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to try really hard this week. And good effort's not a bad thing, but it's a terrible thing to trust in because it will fail you. There's a better thing to trust in, and that's the, the things, the tools, the, the resources that God gives to you. I love this story. I was reminded of it this week uh, from a long time ago, longer now that I looked at the date on the illustration. But Charlie Boswell was um, a, a famous golfer. I, I'm not, I don't know, it didn't work intentionally, but he also was blind. And uh, he had gone to World War II, had been drafted. He was put in, he's a captain, and he was um, one day in the, in the line of battle. Uh, one of his friends was caught inside a tank um, that was burning, and he went to try to rescue that, and the, the tank exploded and, and threw him away, threw him back, and, and, but it blinded him in the process of that, of that explosion. And so Charlie Boswell had been a very successful athlete in a lot of ways, but he came home and he was now blind. But he, he wanted to still compete. He wanted to do the things that he, he loved to do. And so um, someone introduced him to golf. And so through the course of things, they, they helped him figure out how to, to, to be a golfer, uh, even though he had this blindness in his life. And Boswell ended up winning the National Blind Golf Championship 16 times, once shooting a score of 81. And so when I get home today, I'm going to go burn my golf clubs because I can't ever do anything like that, okay? Um, in 1958, uh, Charlie went to Fort Worth, Texas to receive a coveted award from the, the very famous golfer, Ben Hogan. And Ben Hogan was giving out an award in honor of the greatest professional golfers in history. And, and, and just because of Charlie and his circumstances, he was being honored as one of those kind of folks. And so Hogan agreed as they were talking with Charlie. They said, hey, let's, let's go play golf together sometime. And Hogan agreed to play a round of golf with Charlie. And Charlie said, well, would you like to play for money? I'll challenge you. How about $1,000 a hole? And Hogan was like, no, that would, be, that would look terrible if I was taking money from a blind golfer. I'm a professional, you know, I'm really good. And, and really, but, but Charlie was just very persistent. He said, I, I, I really want to do this. I, I'm serious. I'll, I'll do $1,000 a hole. And uh, Hogan says, that's just too much money. Well, how, much, how many strokes do I have to give you? And Bob said, no strokes. I'll play you heads up. 
And uh, Hogan said, well, Charlie, I just can't do that. What would people think of me taking advantage of a blind man? And Boswell smiled and said, look, don't worry. Uh, our tea time is midnight tonight. And so um, oftentimes as we deal with this whole thing on, boy, how do I match the schemes of the devil? Um, it's dark at midnight for those that didn't get that joke. Okay, okay so it's, it's an even playing field. Um, <laughs> I don't know, if I have to explain it, it's not funny, I guess. But uh, when, when oftentimes, we oftentimes try to deal with these schemes in ways that are of my own making, my own inventions, and I'm just playing on the wrong playing field, right? If you put Hogan on, on that playing field at midnight, it's pretty even, probably in a lot of ways. And so this is what Paul invites us into. He says this in verses six through, uh, chapter 6, verse 14 and following. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now, we'll come back and look at the end of that next week as we finish this series out. But I, I just want to highlight a couple of things here as we finish. Um, I haven't said the word finally yet, so, uh, but I, I'm getting close to saying finally. Um, I just want you to look at that armor with, with me really quickly. There are two sections to that armor. I think verses uh, uh, 14 and 15 kind of give you the armor that if you were just a typical soldier, again, Paul is an ambassador. He's in chains, right? He's in Roman custody. And so it would be very normal for Paul to be able to look at the people he's hanging out with every day, all these Roman soldiers that are around him. And in doing so, he would, uh, he would very quickly recognize the armor. And so maybe that's where the illustration comes from. Uh, or maybe it comes from other things, but just it wouldn't be out of, out of line for that. If you were a Roman soldier, there were three things that no matter what your day brought, whether you're digging ditches or fighting a war, you're going to put these three things on. There's the belt, there's the breastplate, and then there's the shoes. Those are things, things that you would wear every day. And, and I love the, ap the application that someone made with that, that, that they made this idea that you can look at those three pieces of spiritual armor and really tie them to three of the things that Satan is most known for. Satan is known as being a liar. He is known as being an accuser. And he is known as being a discourager. Right? I think all three of those things, and as you look at these, these three pieces of equipment that we are given, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that these are the things that we put on that helps us to defeat those things that Satan comes at us with. So the belt of truth. Right? The belt of truth is the idea that ever since the garden, what Satan's chief tactic, it is to lie. It is to twist. It is to get us to think, well, did God really say? And so what is the belt of truth? The belt of truth is that reminder that... Um, that God has spoken truth, um, that Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 6 claims that he is the truth. Um, and so as we look to Jesus, the personification of, of who God is, he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the, the life. And the idea of, uh, we live in a world where there can be, everybody's got their own truth, but the Bible always calls us to see that there is one truth, 
that is over all of us, that all of us are accountable to, that all of us, there is a standard that we are all held accountable to. And that truth is found perfectly presented in the person of Jesus. And so Satan comes and says, nah, there's all kinds of truths. It doesn't matter. You don't need truth. And so he tries to deceive and, 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 to, and to manipulate that truth. And, uh, and God comes and says, hey, there's this piece of equipment. You've got to hold on to the truth. You've got to think, yeah, there is a truth. It is in Jesus. And what he says is true. And oftentimes we think, well, what Jesus says is true about heaven is great. Yeah, I'm sure he knows what he's talking about with heaven and, and eternal life. But, but there's a lot of us, including me, that when I read the things that Jesus says about, well, well what about this life? Do I believe that Jesus' truth applies to, to my everyday life? Do I really believe that? There's a part of us that maybe push back and have some doubts about that. Does Jesus really talk about all that stuff about loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you? Does he really know what he's talking about? And a lot of us say, no, he doesn't. I'm going to do it what I think is right. And in a hundred different, different things, we just do our own thing. But, and when we do that, we weaken ourselves. We make ourselves vulnerable to, to, to his attacks. Um, and so Paul says, hey, you got to hold on to the truth. But the second thing, and I love what 3 John 4 says before we move to that, that I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth, to live out this truth on a daily basis, right? It's not just believing truth. It's walking in the truth. And then he talks about a breastplate. That would be a thing that he would put on that would protect all of your organs, right? Protect your heart, your lungs, uh, all those things that are so, so important. The book of Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, describes this um, about Satan. It says, Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. I think one of the things that is... Most discouraging and hard about the Christian life is that I want to be this, and yet there's all this evidence that says I'm really this. And the Bible says that one of Satan's most effective tools is to remind you, you aren't this, you are this. Let me remind you, remember what yesterday? Remember what you did? Remember what you said? Remember that? that that's nothing like what this Jesus person would do. And he uses accusation. Not only, uh, sometimes we get the picture, he's kind of like the, in a courtroom scene where you have a, the prosecuting attorney standing before the judge. He was God saying, hey, this man, this woman has no right to claim you to be yours because here's all of the evidence. And, and sometimes I think, well, maybe he's just a liar, but usually when he's accusing me of something, he's not lying. He's telling me the truth. He's bringing up things that I really said, I really did, I really am ashamed of. And that hurts, and that's hard. And so how do you, that can leave you in a place, well, then that creates distance between you and God, right? Because, oh man, I know God is holy, God expects this, and this is who I am. And so there's this distance that begins to create. And so what is this breastplate of righteousness about? It's about the righteousness of Christ being put on me. I love these two verses, 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. And here's the phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see, sometime, somehow in the gospel, there's this cool thing that God does, that we swap. That my unrighteousness, what I am, was put on him, and he died on the cross, so that all of that would, be, would die. The death that I was supposed to die for it. But even better yet, all the righteousness that he is, that in Christ is placed upon me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 also say it this way, that God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This great swap, uh, this great transaction that is the beauty of this. And so when Paul talks about a breastplate of righteousness, whose righteousness am I putting on to protect me from Satan's attacks? If it's my righteousness, Satan can shoot right through that every time. Because I may have a few good days, but the accuser is going to remind me of the day before that when it wasn't so good. But he can't ever pierce through the righteousness of Christ, who was perfect and who was holy. And now in Christ is mine. And so there's this beautiful, beautiful thing that he does for us. I love, when I was in college, I did an internship in Taiwan uh, with a couple of missionaries there. Um, and, and I think even Ted Skiles, some of you know, who's been in, in Taiwan for 50 years from around here, um, he's used this illustration. And I love this. And I was just reminded of it. This is a Chinese word for righteousness on the left right there. It's a Chinese character, not word. It's a character for righteousness. And I always love how the Chinese came to be. Their word for righteousness is made up of two different Chinese words or characters put together. It's made up of the character for lamb and then the character for me. But the way they write it is that the lamb over me is righteousness. And so where do I find the strength that when Satan starts accusing me, when he starts throwing those accusations, and he's right, I'm guilty as, as I could be in so many times, where do I find the strength to keep standing? It's not because, oh man, well, I didn't mean to do it. I can find an excuse for it. It's, no, it's I'm guilty. But the righteousness of Christ is what now surrounds me. Uh, Paul talks about later in the book of Galatians, I think, that, that through our faith when we submit and we're baptized into Christ, that we are clothed with him, that I put on Christ. And there's this beautiful thing that no longer, that I, I now have the spiritual resource of Christ's righteousness to protect me. And so that's a beautiful gift that God gives. And so the next time that you, as a, if you're a Christian, the next time that you hear that voice, you hear Satan accusing you, you need to run and put this piece of equipment on. That it is not the righteousness of Chris Reynolds that makes me right before God. It is the righteousness of Christ that I have put on that protects my heart and protects me. And we'll look at one more and then we'll stop and we'll come back and look at the rest of these next week. Um, finally, it's the feet. He says, the feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Um, footwear is important, right? Some of you spent hours this morning figuring out your footwear to come to church. And we appreciate that because I was like looking at, she looking at your feet. Um, weird um i don't really look at your feet um but you be right but, but if you're gonna wear play sports so i like that analogy like when my kid got to play baseball you go and you didn't want to wear just normal shoes because rubber sold shoes on a dirt field right you slide right so what do you do you get some cleats or your football player you get some cleats your golfer you get some spikes you get something like that that's going to keep your your foot solid on the ground and when paul talks about the gospel of peace I think this is kind of what he's hitting at. Because the Romans had kind of figured some things out about footwear in, in battle. Um, they had learned that you could put nails to the bottom of your shoes so that when you're standing there in battle and you can plant your feet and you can drive those nails or those, those sharp pieces of something to the bottom of their feet, and not in their feet, but through their shoes, um, that all of a sudden when you're attacking or, or you're fighting, your feet standing firm are so, so important. And I would just remind you of this that one of the gifts that God gives you is the peace that comes to the gospel. The peace that I am okay with God. I'm right with God through Christ. I am right with him. And, and on the days, that also speaks of my past, that speaks of my present, and it speaks of my future, right? That my past is forgiven. 
My future is um, secure. It may be turbulent, but it's, it's secure. But there's this incredible future for me. And so um, that Christ's peace silences the discourager. Because I don't know if you've noticed that life can be hard. Life is discouraging. Living in a world where just, we're, and I think it's even worse today because we're exposed to all the evil in the world. So much junk, so much brokenness, so much sin, so much evil. It's like, okay, is it worth it anymore? Is it worth trying anymore? And we lose our peace and we're worried and we're disturbed. And, and yet I love what Paul would write in the book of Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, when he would say this, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding. And here's the same word. Here's the military word, right? This is a military word. Will guard your heart. Will guard your heart. It protects you, right? When Satan comes with all this discouragement saying, not worth it, don't keep trying, don't keep praying for them, don't keep investing in that relationship, don't, don't, don't. And he gives you all the reasons that it should discourage you to quit gospel says, hey, there's this peace. God is still on his throne. In Christ, I am seated with him. It may not look like it right now. Life may be hard. There may be some difficult things that I'm, I'm having to walk through, but I've got this peace. And I just love this, the way this looked out. Well, I think it's earlier in the book of Philippians. This is the last thing, I'm, finally, this is the last thing I'm going to say, I promise. I just love how Paul, in the book of Philippians, when he's in jail and he's reflecting with his, those he's writing to, and he's, he's debating on, I'm in prison. They could take me to court tomorrow, pronounce my execution, and hang me, kill me, crucify me. They could take my life. Or they could leave me, set me free, and I could go and I'll keep doing this whole Jesus ministry thing. But I love Paul's attitude. It basically is to live is Christ, to die, remember what he says, is gain. He wins either way. That's what peace does to you. You know what, if I live... I've got this peace that I'm going to live in because I get to walk and serve Jesus a little longer. If I die, where's the gain? I die because I get to be with Jesus. It's a win-win situation. That's what peace does for you. And it protects you because it gives you this peace that says, you know what? Today may be hard. They may be frustrating. Maybe a lot of discouraging things going on in your life. But there's this peace that protects you. It guards you. You know it's going to be okay because the one who holds you gives you his peace. And so uh, this morning, uh, we'll look at the other three next week, but just I, I just, I love the idea of these first three are things that you've got to put on every day. You need to put on that belt of truth. If there is a truth I need to live to. Don't listen to the lies. There is a breastplate that needs to protect my heart, and it's the righteousness of Christ. And, and there's this peace. Um, I need to fit my spiritual feet so that I can stand today, and no matter what comes, I can stand in peace because Christ has given me his peace, and he guards me with it. And so this morning, I just would just, um, we'll finish with this prayer, um, just that we would see our enemy, we'd understand his schemes, and that we would use the spiritual resources that God gives us to begin to stand strong in a world that we need to stand strong in. Would you pray with me, please?